So um, the, the lecture last time tackled what I called uh, Plato's political project. And the way I portrayed it was largely negatively in the sense that I didn't say here is the positive content of his politics so much as I argued against um, interpretations of his politics um, as um, totalitarian and necessarily anti-democratic. Aside from saying uh, that Plato is not uh, a proto-totalitarian, I, I did portray his politics as, you know, fundamentally conservative in a particular sense, right? Socrates, or Plato portrays politics as something that can only get worse than what it is. Um, and so therefore, if you're going to engage in politics, it should be uh, in the interest of shoring up, preserving, conserving um, what exists um, in order to forestall its decay into something worse um, uh, you know, as long as possible. This time I want to try to say something a little more positive about that, but, um, but it's going to take a, sort of a detour because what I want to do today is I really want to talk about Plato's politics as fundamentally a, a form of ethics. The title of Plato's book, uh, the thing we're reading, Republic, I've mentioned this in previous lectures, but I'm going to reiterate it. The title in Greek is Politeia. Politeia means the constitution or the form of government or the regime of a city. But there's a strong case to be made, um, and this comes out especially at the end of book nine and then even more strongly at the end of book 10, there's a strong case to be made that the politeia that Socrates um, and Plato are fundamentally concerned with is the arrangement of the soul, um, not the arrangement of the city. So one place where this is very evident, and this is the first slide of your of the uh, lecture slides, um, is this text. This is right at the end of book nine. Um, Glaucon says that, you know, that someone who has listened to all of this would not be, you know, wouldn't be concerned with the state of the city. And Socrates is like, oh, well, I wouldn't be so sure of that. They are going to be very concerned with the state of the city. And Glaucon's like, oh, I get your meaning. You mean the city in speech, right? Not necessarily the city that exists uh, in the real world that they happen to live in. And Socrates agrees and he says, uh, he calls the city in speech what they have just produced in the book. He calls it a pattern laid up in heaven. The idea seems to be that it's a, it's a pattern that um, would guide the self-care of whoever wants to live a just and happy life. Right? So this is, this is the ethical reading, like that everything we've gone through is not really about rearranging the political uh, world we live in. It's not about the government we happen to live under, but rather it's about it's about producing a, a model for how we would arrange our souls and therefore care for ourselves. I think that notion that fundamentally what we've been concerned in in the Republic is the state of the soul is then reinforced by what happens at the end of book 10. So the end of book, so 
book 10 is divided into two large, into two chunks, right? Most of it, the first two thirds or so is concerned with this reiterating, repeating and deepening the criticism of poetry and the poets. And in particular, a criticism of Homer. Um, and I wanna, I'm gonna come back to that criticism of Homer uh, in a couple ways. But right at the end, the, the last third is taken up by, like in the Gorgias, another myth of the afterlife. This one is called the story of Ur, the myth of Ur. It tells the story of this uh, fellow who falls in battle, but um, doesn't actually die, but goes and gets uh, basically a tour of the afterlife um, and then is sent back to his body uh, in order to tell everybody um, about what the world of uh, the afterlife is actually like. And right at the end of book 10, this is the very last paragraph, Socrates says, well, this tale, this myth was saved. Uh, it was preserved and now I'm passing it on and it could save us. And how is it that it could save us? Well, it could tell us how to, you know, cross the river of Lethe and not defile our souls. It could make, tell us how to, that is to choose a good life. So, that refers to a particular passage in the myth where Socrates talks about these souls who have come back from their thousand year journey through the afterlife in which they have either been punished or rewarded. And he talks about how a bunch of souls chose new lives before they were reincarnated. And the most of the souls, you know, choose kind of randomly, they, or they choose on the basis of their previous experience. But then he says, and this is um, the 617, he talks about how Odysseus made a good choice. Odysseus was the very last soul to choose from among the lives that were laying about. But what did, what did Odysseus do? Odysseus chose well because he looked around, he, he was tired of the life of honor uh, and competition that he had lived. And so he looked around and found the life of a private person um, who minded his own business. And he chose that and he was extremely happy with it and said that even if it had been his, even if he had had the first choice, that is the life he would have picked. And that's the choice that Socrates seems to be urging on all of us, right, is to choose the life of a private person who minds their own business, right? And what is their own business? Well, the state of their own soul. But I want to read that passage in relation to another trip that Odysseus made to the afterlife, another story about a trip that Odysseus made to the afterlife, one that has been referenced before in the Republic, namely when Odysseus goes down into Hades uh, during the Odyssey. And in the Odyssey, when Odysseus goes to Hades, one of the things that he does is he speaks with Achilles. And when he speaks to Achilles, and I've shared this passage on one of the lecture slides as well. When he speaks to Achilles, he says, oh, Achilles, you must be happy in the afterlife. We worshiped you like a god when you were on earth, and now that you're died, we just think even more highly of you, and you're like, you must be the 
biggest, baddest guy down here. Everybody must just admire you so much in the afterlife. You're like a king. And Achilles is having none of it. He says, I would rather be a, a poor peasant, a sharecropper, a serf um, to a, a private man on earth uh, and in life than be king of all of the dead. So the lesson here seems to be that honor does you no good if you're dead, right? And life is more valuable than freedom or than honor or than political power, right? Because Achilles would choose life now, even if he didn't have freedom, even if he had no honor, and even if he did not have a political life at all or any political power at all. So when Socrates cites Odysseus's choice um, at the end of the myth of Ur, he seems to be reiterating this thing that Achilles said when Odysseus met him in the underworld, right? Because it seems as if now Odysseus has learned the lesson that Achilles taught as well, right? Odysseus has learned the lesson um, that he should not uh, care for honor, uh, he should not care for politics, political power, um, and rather he should just choose a, a private life. But there's something also weird going on here because that passage from the Odyssey was one of the verses of poetry that was excised way back in book three. In fact, it was the very first passage of poetry that uh, Socrates and Adamantus agreed had to be excised um, about the afterlife. Because Socrates says, look, it may be a pretty passage, it may be really nice as poetry, but it should not be heard by men and boys who must be free and accustomed to fearing slavery more than death. Right. Uh, and so Socrates and Adamantus get rid of it. Um, so there's kind of an interesting reversal here. Um, there's a way in which the myth of Ur seems to be now disavowing the choice that Socrates and Adamantus made earlier in the book right? um, and seems to be saying actually um, there is a truth in that passage that is uh, that is worth preserving. The same passage makes another appearance though um, in the book and I think this really complicates things even more. That is so it appears in book seven, at the very beginning of book seven, it occurs in the, uh, at the end of the image of the cave. Um, Socrates there is describing how the philosopher, after they have been up um, out of the cave and have seen the real world, how if they remembered their life back in the cave, they would think that it's a terrible shame uh, and that it's, it's nothing uh, worth having. And they would recall um, that 
in the contests that took place in the cave where honor was bestowed upon the people who were really good at recognizing the shadows on the wall and predicting which shadows would come next and that sort of thing. Um, they would recall those honors and they would be like, I, I, would, I don't want that at all. And then he cites the Achilles line again. He says, I would rather be a, a serf to a portionless man um, than be king of all the dead. This is particularly striking because the implication here seems to be that it is the world of politics. It's the world of the city. It's the world of life that is the world of the dead. And so it is worse to be a king over the dead, that is, in real life, <laughs> um, than to be a portionless servant in life, where life now means not the life that we normally live, but the life of philosophy, right? Um, the life of learning. I like the way that this passage gets cited and referred to multiple times over the course of the Republic um, and the way in which its meaning seems to change um, and, and the lesson that Plato seems to want us to draw from it uh, shifts a little bit um, over time. And I think if we put all of those things together, what they suggest is something like a purely ethical reading of the Republic. Going back to the, the myth of Ur, the thing that Socrates says um, in near the end of the myth of Ur, when he's talking about the, the choosing of a life, he says, uh, this is at 16 or 618 um, C, 619 through 619 B, somewhere in there. He says that the most important thing that you can do, the greatest risk for human beings, is of figuring out how to choose a life from among those that are possible. And this is also on the slide, this passage, and it's, I think the passage, the passage is kind of convoluted and it's worth meditating on for a little while and reading four or five times, but Socrates seems to be saying, look, the most important thing you can do in this life is choose who your teacher is going to be. Choose who you're going to follow. And the criterion should be, who are you going to follow who can teach you how to choose the best life from among those available? Um, and that seems to be uh, sort of the Socratic, Platonic conception of ethics. Right? Ethics means choosing a life. And not just any life, but the best life from among those that are possible. This is going to resonate with something that we're going to read in Aristotle um, for Thursday, because yeah, we're going to read a little, pa a little bit from uh, Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics. And one of the things, that, one of the things that Aristotle says about ethics is that ethics is about what's up to us, right? So ethics is the, the study of what's up to us and what's amenable to choice and how to choose those things that are up to us. I think that resonates with what 
um, Plato is putting in the mouth of Socrates at the end of the Republic. What's up to us is that we can choose to see the life of philosophy as the true life and the life of opinion and public esteem as a sort of living death. Um, and we can therefore choose to study philosophy. That's the, the great ethical uh, takeaway, I think, of the Republic. And this contrasts with politics, because if ethics is about choosing what's up, you know, from the options that are available to you, politics is precisely about what's not up to you. Politics is what happens to out there, right? That depends upon more than you, right? Politics is about group choice. It's about what all of us do together. And therefore, it's about what none of us get to um, choose on our own. And this, I think, circles back to the beginning, uh, to the Gorgias, right? Socrates' critique of Gorgias um, was precisely that, so Gorgias promised his students, basically, that politics could be entirely up to them right, that they could make people do whatever they want to them to do through the use of rhetoric, right, that rhetoric would allow people to um, sort of hijack the, the souls and choices of other people and make them do whatever the rhetorician wanted them to do. And Socrates' critique of Gorgias amounted to this, that you don't get to choose, you, you, you actually can't control other people. When you try to control other people, all you end up doing is flattering uh, their desires, right? So this is, this is Socrates' uh, attack on rhetoric. This is why he calls it sort of a, an offshoot of uh, pastry cooking, right? That you can't control people. Uh, and when you, and whenever they do what you say, this is only because you have flattered whatever desires they already have. This is why Callicles, although he thinks he's going to be the master of the demos, is actually the slave of the demos. And this is why, going back to book nine, this is why the tyrant is also the slave of his slaves. The tyrant, like Callicles, wants to control politics and, and subordinate the city to uh, his own will and desires. But in order to make that happen, uh, he actually has to subordinate his own desires uh, to the desires of uh, the city, to the desire of those he wants to subjugate. This construal of ethics as choosing a life uh, from among those that are possible and, and focusing on what's up to you involves a denigration of politics precisely as the realm that is governed by things that you can't control. Um, and therefore, 
it's governed by forces that uh, that you can't be happy in politics. Right? Happiness um, can only come through um, uh, an ethical self-cultivation, right? Controlling yourself, because that's up to you. Living the best life that you can, that's up to you. And that can make you happy. So all of this suggests uh, an elevation of ethics um, and a denigration of politics. Okay, but, and now I wanna go back to the Plato versus Homer thing again. Uh, uh, and, and bring in some of the stuff from the first two thirds of book 10. Um, and this is also going to touch on the issues that uh, come up in the course of the youth of Rome. Even if Plato has no intention of trying to control what he can't control, that is of trying to control other people, he does seem to think that he can intervene in political life in an intelligent way. And I think he tries, I think he tries to model a sort of intelligent political intervention uh, in the Republic, even if it is not um, the sort of, here's what everyone should do sort of political um, dictation. So, First of all, I want to think about, well, Socrates is his model. So what did Socrates do? Uh, you know, Socrates practiced a certain sort of political intervention also, but Socrates' intervention was that he talked directly to people, right? Not the way the rhetoricians did, right? Socrates didn't try to persuade people to do what he wanted them to do. Rather, Socrates tries to educate their desire, right? By showing the contradictions in what they, in the courses of action that they have chosen for themselves and the way that they see the world, right? He, he tries to show them that they don't actually know the things that they think they know. Um, and therefore that they're, action in the world is not guided by uh, a sort of insight or knowledge in the way they think they do. The idea here is to educate their desire, to draw their intelligence away from the objects of opinion, the things they think they know, right? um, to show them that they don't know the things they think they know, and therefore to awaken them the desire to um, learn the things that they can really know, that is, the, to pursue philosophy. Right. So this is what he tries to do to Glaucon and Adimantus. This is what he tries to do to even to Thrasymachus and Polymarchus. It's what he tries to do to Callicles and Gorgias even, right? To show them that they don't know what they think they know and to try to awaken in them a desire to, to learn uh, the things that they can learn. And I think this is why in the Gorgias, Socrates, even towards the end, he declares himself the only Athenian to practice the true art of politics. So, and that is, he's the only one who tries to make his, uh, 
his fellow human beings better people, right? That's the Socratic uh, political intervention is to try to um, educate the desire of his interlocutors. But notice, Plato doesn't do what Socrates does. Socrates is Plato's hero, but Plato doesn't follow in Socrates' footsteps. He doesn't emulate Socrates. He doesn't go around talking to his fellow citizens one-on-one -on -one in the way that Socrates did. He does something else, right? He invents a new form of poetry. This, I think, is the stakes of the critique of Homer uh, in Book 10, right? Basically, the criticism of Homer is that, look, Homer is the most influential of all poets. All of the tragedians, everybody emulates him. Everyone is just followed in his footsteps. But Socrates says, uh, Homer didn't know what he was talking about, right? Uh, where are the records of Homer doing great things? Homer tells us about, he portrays courage, he portrays great wars, he portrays the gods, he portrays um, everything. And people draw all of this wisdom from his poet, poems. But where is the records of, of, uh, of Homer ever like reforming a city's constitution or ruling in a city? Where is the, the record of him having improved anyone's life or having won a war? Homer and the other poets by extension, they don't um, do any of the things that they tell us about, right? That, you know, there's that old, uh, there's that old adage, you know, those who don't know teach, right? Or those who can't do teach, right? Something like that. Um, and you could say that's, that's Socrates' critique of Homer. Homer writes poetry because he doesn't know how to do the things that he writes about. All he knows how to do is use words to make us think that we are seeing the things that he's talking about, right? So um, Socrates in Book 10, um, is incredibly harsh on, on um, Homer because all he does is produce images of images of real things. That is, he uses words to make us get the feeling for, uh, a, you know, a common opinion of what courage is. And because his description accords with the common opinion of what courage is, then we're like, ah, yes, courage. But in fact, it doesn't teach us anything about courage. All it does is it mirrors our common opinions back to us. And that's why, uh, you know, going back to the image of the cave, right? Who is it who's holding the puppets that are casting the shadows on the wall that then people argue about? Well, I think the best case could be made that it's the poets, right? They're the ones who make the images that cast the shadows that people argue about. But Plato is not 
happy merely to criticize Homer and to criticize Homeric and tragic poetry for not knowing what it's really talking about. He wants to replace it, right? He, he produces a new form of poetry. So there's this great passage, um, which I've put on the slides. This is um, at 604E through 605D. Um, and I'm actually gonna, I'm gonna read it to you because it's so good. So this is in the middle of the discussion of, of poetry and what's wrong with poetry. <laughs> and especially what's wrong with tragedy, right? Socrates says, uh, Socrates is talking with Glaucon here and he says, recalling things they've said before. The best part in us is what's willing to follow calculation, right? Glaucon says plainly. Whereas the part that leads to reminiscences of the suffering and to complaints and can't get enough of them, won't we say that it is irrational, idle, and a friend of cowardice? So he's thinking about, you know, the, the, the wailing and moaning that goes on in a tragedy right? When the, 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 the person being portrayed on stage is, is uh, like thinking about what has happened, what they, the mistakes they have made and bemoaning their fate and, uh, and wailing for the audience. Um, and uh, Glaucon agrees. And then Socrates says, this is 604e, now then, the irritable disposition affords much and varied imitation, while the prudent and quiet character, which is always nearly equal to itself, is neither easily imitated, nor, when imitated, easily understood, especially by a festive assembly where all sorts of human beings are gathered in a theater. For the imitation is of a condition that is surely alien to them. That's entirely certain, says Glaucon. Then plainly, Socrates continues, the imitative poets, poets aren't naturally directed toward any such part of the soul, and his wisdom isn't framed for satisfying it, if he's going to get a good reputation among the many, but rather toward the irritable and various disposition, because it is easily imitated. So Socrates' point seems to be, look, the tragic poets I mean, tragedies aren't about well-ordered people who make all the right decisions, right? Tragedies are about people making catastrophic mistakes and all of the drama and heartache and torment that follows from that, okay? Um, so in a tragedy, you, show, you don't show someone living a quiet, well-ordered life. You show someone accidentally killing their father and marrying their mother, um, and then uh, everybody committing suicide at the end and the city falling into civil war, right? That's what you show, because <laughs> that's more entertaining, right? Um, and so Socrates attacks this sort of poetry for imitating, basically imitating and holding up before us people who we don't want to be like right, or who we shouldn't want to be like. But Plato doesn't just criticize that kind of poetry. He 
produces a new kind, right? He produces these dialogues, which show us precisely a quiet and well-ordered hero, right? Someone who is almost always equal to himself, Socrates, who is therefore difficult to understand, right? Especially in a large festive, uh, before a large and festive audience, right? You can't imagine Plato's dialogues being acted out on stage to, you know, cheers um, and the like, right? It, it wouldn't make for good, it wouldn't make for good theater. But that's the point, right? Plato wants to, Plato wants to take over the puppeteer's job as much as possible, right? Plato wants to show us images of human life that are different from the images that are portrayed in the, the poetry of Homer, in the poetry of the tragedians, and in the, the popular culture uh, and popular religion of the Greek world. I think that's, that's Plato's political intervention, is to not talk to individual people the way Socrates did, but rather to publish these dialogues, which he thinks will engage in this sort of cultural transformation, right? By giving us good heroes to admire. Uh, someone like Socrates, who he thinks we should all look up to and uh, emulate in our own lives. Then I wanna, I wanna just close out with a couple thoughts about what the limits of Plato's politics are. I mean, first of all, Socrates' political interventions were entirely individualistic, right? Socrates, all Socrates could hope to do was to uh, change the soul of an individual member of the elite, to maybe inoculate them against the fever of power. Plato can do a little better than that, but it's still a very modest sort of politics. It's still fundamentally oriented towards um, the, uh, you know, working on the souls of a few elites. Not just individuals, but I mean, there is, there is, there's a way in which, uh, you know, Plato's poetry isn't just about, you know, something to be read publicly or something to uh, go out and, and transform the culture. Because Plato's poetry is also in a certain way, and this is another aspect of his political intervention, it's also an advertisement for his school, for the academy. That's why one of the most fruitful ways to read Plato's Republic is to read it as the world's first infomercial. You know, something you would, you know, see on TV at, you know, 11 o'clock at night that goes on for four hours telling you about all of the wonderful things that would happen if you just sent your kid to this great school, right? Um, like Plato is telling you, telling the audience, if you care for your, your own soul and you care for the soul of your, of your son uh, and daughter, there were actually a few women who went to Plato's Academy, send them to Plato's Academy. We'll take good care of them, right? Um, we're the only people who know how to care for your daughter's and son's souls. I think there's a real element of that. And in that sense, Plato's um, Republic is sort of the counterpart to Gorgias's encomium to Helen. Gorgias's encomium to Helen is supposed to display 
Gorgias's rhetorical skills at the same time that it sells the power of rhetoric in general and makes you want to take Gorgias's classes so that you can have that power. That's Plato's Republic too. It tells you about the futility of the ordinary course of political education and how instead, if you really want to be just and happy, then you have to study under the right teacher. And I'm the right teacher, Plato says. Come to my school. So, you know, that's a limited sort of politics, right? It's, a, it's an educational politics. Um, it's one that appeals to the elites to, yeah, to send their kids to Plato University, exactly. There's another aspect to it, though, which is, I mean, the Republic doesn't just have this exhortation to study philosophy. It also does have, and I'm thinking especially of Book 8, it has analyses of social uh, dynamics, right, and social political dynamics, right. It's, it does tell us or purports to tell us how the world works, how the political world works to some extent. But insofar as it tells us how the world works, it, and insofar as it tells us, look, there are certain predictable dynamics to the socio-political world we live in, it does so in the form of arguments against institutional reform for the most part, um, right? So, here, I'm going to show you the social, socio-political dynamics of democracy. And that's going to show you why we have to try to preserve the democracy as much as possible and not let it devolve into a tyranny. Right? The idea is not to propose precise, you know, uh, institutional fixes, but rather to um, show us a sort of fatalistic decline that we should try to um, stave off and resist. Right? So the, the lesson, insofar as there's a sort of social scientific element in the Republic, it's not oriented towards you know, going out and controlling the world, but, but precisely oriented towards sort of stepping back and, and to having a very light touch on on in your political interventions, right? And that's why I think it is a sort of classically conservative uh, politics uh, that it, 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 it seeks to be as hands-off um, as possible. And that that's the best way, um, the best way forward. I do think there are a couple interesting exceptions to this, and, and I want to point to one just as a very closing note. There's not, I'm not going to draw big lessons out of this, but I just want to call your attention to it because it's an overlooked aspect of the book. Um, this is back in Book 8. Uh, it's one of the interesting aspects of Book 8. This is uh, in the discussion of oligarchy. Um, this is at 556 A and B. Socrates says, uh, it's talking about why the oligarchs allow their city to become a democracy, to collapse because they just pursue money-making. And he says that he does actually propose some laws here um, that he thinks would forestall this, but it, they're precisely the sorts of laws that oligarchs would never introduce. 
Um, so he says, they aren't willing to quench this kind of evil, that is the, the fostering of debt and poverty, um, either by preventing a man from doing what he wants with his property. That's the first thing. You could prevent people from, uh, you could have a law that would prevent people from taking out loans against their property, right? Or, pre or prevents them from selling their property, right? Um, you could prevent um, some of the market transactions that lead to poverty and debt. Or, he says, alternately, by instituting another law that resolves such cases, one that takes second place to the former law which and which compels the citizens to care for virtue. For if someone were to prescribe that most voluntary contracts are to be made at the contractor's own risk, the citizens would make money less shamelessly in the city and fewer evils of the kind we were describing would grow in it. So I think the idea here is that um, we're also talking about loans here. If, if banks made loan, would only make loans on their own risk, right? If they couldn't compel you to give collateral um, for a loan, but they would only uh, loan you money on your honor, um, and they would uh, take on all of the risk, then Socrates is saying that would make them much more conservative, obviously, in how they loaned out money and what sorts of contracts they entered into. So basically, if, if all contracts were at the risk of the, the individual entering into them, then um, people would be very, very conservative about what sorts of contracts they entered into. So those are just a couple examples where Socrates does actually propose laws. But I think it's interesting that he precisely proposes laws that would not appeal to the people who they need to appeal to, right? Those, are, those laws would preserve an oligarchy, but they are precisely laws that no oligarch would want to pass. Um, because it would involve basically uh, renouncing the pursuit of money that defines them as oligarchs. 